Hello, hello. It's a new year full of expectations, foreboding, resolutions and whatnot. Not surprisingly then, we are in the month named after a certain two-faced Roman god of gates, beginnings, transitions, times and duality. Janus, after whom the month of January is named. So we had a little break and after our little break, here we are once again to talk about breezy tales, funny stories, epic buffoonery, all under the garb of a very serious podcast, which like always, you will proceed to inflict promptly on your eardrums all over again. No political punditry, no crystal clear analysis, no carefully planned emotional meltdowns, just your regular dose of trivia, news and banter as promised. Plus a few changes and surprises, which shall be revealed all in due course. So, after ensuring that Novak Djokovic safely took off from Melbourne and is on his way back to his home, and after finishing his brief stint at Hogwarts, trying to get Victor Crumb to play volleyball, apparently, I've heard this on the grapevine, it is my pleasure to welcome back my friend, my co-conspirator and partner in crime, Joy Bhattacharya. And this is a brand new season of Fact of the Matter. How are you doing, Joy? Hi, Ruthin. Doing brilliantly. Start of 2022 is exciting as ever. And nowadays, because we actually transfer bank accounts instead of sending checks, we don't have to make the mistake of writing 2021 five times and having checks cancelled before finally getting it right into 2022. <laughs> but you know, Djokovic has a very interesting side story as well. There's another very big person who's uh, not allowing himself to get vaccinated. And that's a player called Kyrie Irving. And okay. he plays for the Brooklyn Nets. An interesting part about it is that the Brooklyn Nets are a championship team because they've got Kevin Durant, who's a brilliant player. They've got James Harden. Mm-hmm. So, with Kyrie Irving, they are well-nigh unbeatable. Except that Kyrie Irving refuses to get himself vaccinated. So, what's happening is, it's a very good team, but they're not being able to play with all three because in New York, if you're not vaccinated, you cannot play. My God. Recently, the Brooklyn Nets got themselves into such a situation where they had a lot of injuries. So, they figured out that there are many places in the US where Kyrie Irving can play, but not at home. So, Kyrie Irving has actually played a few games which are not actually in Brooklyn. And the team has won and everyone's saying, God, if these three get together, they can win a championship. And he refuses. And he refuses. And he refuses. <laughs> this vaccine and the coronavirus is playing havoc in so many ways. And yeah, and you're absolutely right. I'm sure there are many such instances happening all over the world in, in, in many other sporting areas. Because there are people who are pretty strong in their decisions not to get vaccinated. Now, whether it's good or bad, you know, one can take sides and one can explain from either direction, I guess. But when it affects the performance of a sports team, I guess it gets uh, quite serious, right? But talking of seriousness, talking of Novak Djokovic, and one small thing which I wanted to add is the entire Djokovic incident had Nick Kyrgios supporting him. The bad boy of Aussie tennis. Nick Kyrgios is coming out looking like a saint here and actually supporting Novak Djokovic. I thought Kyrgios attacks anybody and everybody. Any other tennis player who comes in front of him, like saying, you know what, I'm the bad boy and I'm unapologetic about it and I love it. <laughs> well, he's chosen, obviously, he's, as usual, he's chosen absolutely the right cause to go after because <laughs> expect him to be a complete, complete you know, counterfactual to everything there is. You know, whenever I hear of Djokovic, I just say two words. Typhoid Mary. I mean, if somebody has something, do you allow them out in the streets? You don't. And anyway, that, you can make out where I stand. I know, I, I get that. I get that. But, um, 
it's it's good to start the new year on a controversial note uh controversies you know name and you know part and parcel of the game and today in main course our first section we will start with controversies around the world of sport and we've dug out quite a few and um without any further delay let's move straight into the first story and joy i will kick this off with um actually a, a incident or a series of incidents in the 1970s which divided the world of cricket and led to you know pretty strong ramifications for not just that year but for at least the next 20 years or more i'm talking of cricket south africa and the entire incident around basil d'olivera broadly around apartheid so what what was the story the story was that um, you know throughout the 1960s south africa's apartheid regime uh, was getting the world opinion polarized and while there were enough sporting contacts with white countries by the end of the 60s it had become almost impossible for any south african team tour overseas in a normal manner without facing any hostility in the autumn of 1968 and i've got these details from some very nice articles which i've dug out martin williamson uh, wrote about this in espn cricket for way back in 2012 as well as uh, ram goha has written about it as well but the autumn of 1968 a planned tour by uh, the england side to south africa started this entire incident because it had to be cancelled because of basil d'olivera um Oliveira incidentally was South African who got English citizenship and was playing for England he was a man of color and the South African government or South African cricket uh, you know association at that time told the English team that they couldn't have him as part of the team the tour got cancelled the Australians joy visited the cape in 6970 after this lost 4-0 to a very very strong South African side in those days which included Mike Proctor, Barry Richards, Graeme Pollock, Eddie Barlow, etc., etc. But the biggest problem happened when a Springboks rugby side in 6970 went to tour England, and that is when that entire tour took place in a backdrop of very, very violent demonstrations and civil disobedience. And games were played in very ugly atmospheres. Security issues were a problem, and apparently the team bus joy was hijacked and route to Twickenham to play an international against England. However, the cricket establishment stayed cool in England at that time, and you know, many meetings with the ICC and MCC at that time showed that they were apparently far more concerned with the impending metrication in the UK, the shift to the metric system, <laughs> and how to cope with the change of pitch lengths from 22 yards to 20.12 meters, and how the weight of the ball would move from five and a half ounces to 155.8 grams. Now, these are actually. taken from agenda items in their meetings but these repercussions were building up and it came to light a few months later when Kenya cancelled a visit by the MCC stating that it could not host a side when the club welcomed uh sides from South Africa and then there was wheat killer which was poured over the outfield at Wooster the venue for the South Africans first match uh Arthur Ashe at that time if you remember Joy had just won the US Open right what a fantastic victory he was refused entry into south africa soon after that led to more and more problems however 
the MCC and the TCCB, which was the Test and County Cricket Board of England, they carried a, a normal approach and their meetings were held with the government, but they realized that something was changing and they couldn't sit quietly. More and more county grounds were vandalized and by the middle of February, the MCC was forced to change the itinerary from 28 matches to only 11 matches, taking out grounds which they were thinking were impractical to protect. You know, where already there were lots of vandalizing happening, lots of uh, demonstrations happening, etc. However, the tour was happening. Guess who announced that he would refuse to commentate on any of these matches? It was John Arlott, the great John Arlott. And he said he was one of the first, one of the first big names who actually said, I will not be a part of this. And many journalists joined him. And he, in fact, said that by allowing the tour to go ahead, the Cricket Council had put cricket in a place where it would be the ultimate and inevitable sufferer, adding the tests would offer comfort and confirmation to a completely evil regime. These are John Arlott's own words. And uh, this was going on and on. Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister, told the BBC that the MCC had made a big mistake in allowing the tour to take place. And then everything was coming to a you know, sort of a, a big situation where somebody would break, but the MCC was still holding good. And the Oxford Union voted narrowly, uh, you know, to to oppose this. Everybody was coming up, but the cricket establishment refused to budge. And hotels refused to take bookings from tourists, etc. And then on May 20th, 12 days before the first match, the Cricket Council, which was like the predecessor of the ICC, they voted unanimously for the tour to go ahead. And bizarrely, they said that there would be no further series involving South Africa until South Africa cricket is played, but this tour will go ahead. However, James Callaghan, the British Home Secretary, got involved and uh, uh, there was a very strongly worded request, apparently. Three days after this happened, the Cricket Council called the tour off. Now, some people say that Harold Wilson's government had decided that with a general election some time away, the negative publicity could harm Labour's chances of re-election. Who knows whether that's true or not. There was also fears that it would trigger racial unrest within UK. Uh, the Commonwealth Games, which were coming up, uh, were uh, also at, at risk because, you know, India was already making a lot of noises. Apparently, what happened was, and this is the great part, Joy, the MCC decided to cancel it. There was a hastily arranged five-test series, if you remember, between England and the rest of the world. And uh, that rest of the world team had some of the South African greats playing. And apparently, in this article which I read, uh, Gary Sobers and uh, some of the South African greats were actually playing together and they had some extremely good scores while batting for hours on end. And John Arlott and some of the other guys actually wrote that this is probably the best example of showing straight up to the world that a man of colour and a white man can play together and cricket is the ultimate winner. So I thought that was a fantastic story to revisit. I know a lot of people are aware of this, but this for me was incredible. The last bit is that in September 1973, the planned tour of England by South Africa was also cancelled. And in its place, it was decided that the inaugural ODI World Cup would be held, which finally took place in 1975. So the World Cup actually came out of this entire incident. South Africa finally came back to the fold when, Joy? 94? 90? Yeah, 93, 94? 91. 91. Or 91, 91, right? Eden Gunsen. 
Absolutely. And uh, I thought this was an incredible story. What do you have? What's your first one? No, so before that, yeah, just thinking about going back to that story and I was thinking that in that England, that rest of the world team, in fact, the guy who started the controversy obviously was, you know, when they didn't allow Basil Diolev, the Dolly to Dolivera to play. Yeah, yeah. And that's really, there's, I, I didn't, what I didn't know was that there's even a Broadway play about this whole thing about the Dolly affair and uh, it's interesting because you talk about this is in the early 70s and right after that, I the first one I wanted to talk about was something that happened just a few years after that in 74. Okay. And this is 1974 and this is possibly India's best tennis team ever, you know. Okay. And it's the best Davis Cup team ever. Vijay Amritraj, Anand Amritraj, they're both brilliant players and that was the year, if you remember, there was a huge pro versus amateur, you know, fight between the American and the uh, European professional players and the Association of Tennis Professionals. And what happened as a result was a lot of the top players did not play. A lot of the top players, Jan Codes won Wimbledon the year before. Yeah. And a lot of the top players were not playing. And that was the year that India thought he had his best chance. And it marched through right to the semifinals. And India wow. won the semifinals against the Soviet Union, and Alex Metrovedi was their top player. Of course, of course. India wins, yes. It was an amazing tournament uh, match. We won 3-1, and we reached the finals. And the finals was where South Africa had just beaten, in Johannesburg, they just beaten Italy. Okay. And uh, they had a very, very good team, Bob Hewitt, Ray Muir. And they were the Hewitt and McQuillian were actually very good double specialists. But our singles players were better than them. Mm -hmm. But uh, we never went because... Uh, Mrs. Gandhi at that time took the view that you cannot go there and play in a country because the tournament was supposed to be played, the finals were supposed to be played in South Africa. Yeah. And India said there's no question at all that we are ever going to go and play in South Africa. So, you know, Amritraj Fantastic. talks about yeah. today. Yeah. He says that, you know, whatever it was, we reached that far. But looking back, he said we were terribly disappointed because in those days, he was at the top of his form. 74, he was 20 years old. Yeah. He was at the top of his form, but he said that I'm glad we didn't do it. Interesting sidelight to that. Bob Hewitt, who was, you know, this big tennis player, Hewitt and McMillan. Yeah. He won 15 titles. In 2015, he was convicted of rape and sexual assault of minors, sentenced to prison and permanently expelled from the International Hall of Fame. Okay. Wow. The okay. other player who also played out there in the same tournament, Ray Moore, who was their second singles player. Mm -hmm. And he was resigned from the CEO of... He started the Indian Wells Tennis Tournament. Okay. And he just had to resign from it in 2016 because he spoke about women's tennis in a very, very disparaging fashion. Disparaging saying, you know, If I was a lady player, I'd go down every night on my knees and thank God that Federer and Nadal were born because they have carried this sport. And so he had to say, so two goodness. of the three people involved in that South African team after that went down really, really badly. But that was India's big chance. And though Amritraj said it, he said, I'm glad we didn't take that chance. I think an interesting match would be to have uh, Miss Moore and Margaret Court in a doubles against Navratilova and Billie Jean King. I have a feeling that after a few uh, initial exchanges, uh, it might become physical brawl. And I can only visualize one team winning in that, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. You, uh, uh, in addition to this, I remember you sort of telling me in the run-up to this episode that you had another story about the World Series, I, about I, baseball. I, What's that? I love it because it's a combination of baseball and popular American culture and literature. 
So it's a Black Sox scandal, which is a major league scandal. And this is major league baseball. I'm talking about eight players of a team called the Chicago White Sox, of course, because they swear White Sox were accused yeah. of throwing the 1919 World Series. Okay. And World Series is the biggest thing in baseball against the Cincinnati Reds. And it was a group of eight players. And, you know, in those days, one of the big problems were that you couldn't get transferred. It's very difficult for, you know, players' rights were much less. So a lot of them were dissatisfied. They were underpaid. And their star was one of their stars among them was a chap called Shoeless Joe Jackson. Okay. And he was called Shoeless because he was literally a mill hand, terrific, terrific baseball player, but he was illiterate. Right. And, you know, he also finally admitted. So they were prepared to believe that any other player could do it, but they just couldn't believe that Joe Jackson could take money. So there's this, of course, great legend that apparently when he finally admitted that he had taken $5,000 and, you know, he was guilty, he was walking out of the court building. And there were lots of youngsters there. And apparently one kid stepped in front and said, it ain't true, is it, Joe? And he said, yes, kid, I'm afraid it is. And the kids opened a path and the kid turned and said, well, I'd never have thought it. The truth is, this entire story is American folklore. It never happened. Say it isn't so is actually written by an American journalist. This was this beautiful story which has gone down 70 years in American sort of popular history. It never really happened. Joe Jackson, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson was never interviewed. This actually appeared in a newspaper article. The funny thing was, we talk about juries and how juries can be a problem in India. Yeah. When these eight players went in front of the jury, all mm -hmm. of them were acquitted. And that was oh. the crazy part. Okay. So you'd ask me, what's this India connection? Right. The India connection is that this whole incident, this 2019, the ultimate jazz era novel is a novel called The Great Gatsby. Yeah. So if you see The Great Gatsby, The Great Gatsby, this man who appears from nowhere and he keeps throwing these big parties. And basically, the whole concept of these big parties was sponsored by a gambler called Mayor Wultsheim. Yeah. So talk about Mayor Wultsheim as somebody who had actually paid off the 1919 World Series. So, Mayor Mulshine is based on Aaron Rothstein, the guy who actually paid for and organized this whole fix of the 1919 World Series. And in Baz Durman's version of the film... I know Mayor this. Mulshine I know this. By, by Mr. Amitabh Bachchan in a, in a cameo role. Yes. I remember. I remember that scene. Yes. You were saying Mayor Wolfsheim and immediately I remembered Leonardo DiCaprio walking in and it was this very surreal club scene. One of those places where there's gambling going on. There are roulette tables and baccarat and blackjack and whatnot and, and alcohol flowing like as if there's no tomorrow. And suddenly you hear the unmistakable, rich voice of Mr. Bachchan. And it was, un yeah, it was, it was a very proud moment, actually, to see AB in an in a international Hollywood film and that to a Baz Luhrmann, who's known for making these, you know, extremely epic, rich, tapestry-filled movies, right? I mean, that way. So, yes, uh, okay, so that's, that, was, that was a fantastic second one, and especially the Indian connection. I mean, like Mr. Bachchan, please forgive us. We are not trying to allude in any way that there is a link between you and match fixing. The only match I hope you have fixed are the, the wedding matches for your children or your grandchildren or something like that, if I may take that line. Um, but, Joy, before we leave main course, I have another fantastic story. Now, controversies and sports, right? The Olympic Games, along with great feats of uh, Olympian magnitude and so on and so forth and, you know, brilliant stories. And we have done this. We have done a special episode last year on the Olympics. What also comes to my mind are stories of where the Olympics 
often led to because i guess of its position of being a a global competitive sporting landscape of boycotts for various reasons now we all know about the 1980 moscow olympics where the western countries got together and boycotted them and then when the next time in 84 the olympics moved to los angeles the soviet bloc or the, or the eastern bloc decided to boycott it but do you know joy when or in which olympic games the first instance of a boycott came about can you tell me uh no but i thought actually it was 1976 i know there was a boycott in 76 again because of apartheid but i didn't know there was a was it 76 no so the first boycott and i'm talking about the modern olympics i mean don't come back and say uh, emperor nero boycotted one of the ancient games because he had a you know bad tummy upset due to inferior wine that won't that won't hold i'm talking about the modern olympic games and the first boycott happened in 1956 in the melbourne olympics and a total of eight countries decided to boycott as a mark of protest but for different reasons and i'll tell you what they are so four countries egypt iraq cambodia and lebanon decided not to participate due to the suez crisis why cambodia i can imagine joy egypt iraq lebanon being closed by oil cambodia why cambodia i mean this is like saying when iran i, I remember a joke where somebody said in iraq when iran invaded iraq in 1984 within 24 hours italy surrendered i mean one of those horrible jokes about you know uh, various countries so this almost this almost sounds like uh, one of those I and mean, maybe there's a reason is there oil in cambodia would were there tankers getting stuck because of the suez crisis i don't know but other than these four the suez crisis something about the angudin revolution also no nah, that's yes yes spain switzerland and the netherlands stayed out because they protested the soviet union's crushing of the hungarian revolution they so that's seven but other than the seven there was a eighth country which decided not to attend the games and guess which country it was it was china joy 1956 china boycotted the games the olympic games because taiwan was participating in the competition as a separate nation i think that's a really interesting one right they should call themselves formosa at that time yes yes that's right that's right and that started basically but the best story i have to tell you is the next olympics joy it's the one after that the next was in rome in 1960 but tokyo 1964 three countries chose to boycott it and the three countries were north korea china and indonesia because you know the ioc refused to admit any participants who took part in something called the games of the new emerging forces which was held apparently in jakarta in 1963 called the ganefo games g a n e f o and north korea china and indonesia had participated and You can't really call it a boycott boycott because basically the IOC said none of your guys would be allowed to participate so they took the uh, honorable way out by boycotting so yes it was not 1976 joy you're absolutely right it saw the first instance of a mass boycott when 29 countries boycotted the games because the IOC uh, refused to ban New Zealand after their rugby team toured South Africa and by this time in 76 it was at the height of apartheid so it took place even after i mean the rugby team went to visit south africa even after the united nations had called for a sporting embargo and uh, i thought that was that was very interesting but uh, that brings us to the end of main course joy and um, yes sporting controversies as long as there's sports as long as there's live sports 
there will be controversies and i'm sure we have not seen the end of it we wish novak djokovic the very best he's one of the one of the greatest tennis players in the world and i'm sure going forward we'll see a lot more out of him but yes the australian open will definitely seem a bit lighter given that uh, even federer is not playing from what i know joy so it's it's probably going to be nadal it's going to be a looking interestingly resurgent andy murray who just reached a final in one of the build up tournaments and of course all the all the other up and coming talent and you can't really call them up and coming they've been waiting patiently for these big 3 to go away and they don't seem to go away yes. yeah exactly so the danny med Medvedevs and the Nick Kyrgioses and the Sitsipasses and you know all these guys. So that's it. That's main course for today. And uh, we move straight into believe it or not our section for crazy news, funny news, etc., etc. Joy, give us something really crazy to kickstart the new season in the new year. Right after this break. Welcome back. And this is time, as we said, for believe it or not, our section where we we we, we scour the world's uh, uh, news pages from from every single country and try and get you very very interesting and extremely important news items, which you might not agree, but we think it's very very important to know to what extents of craziness people can go just to get themselves into headlines, so as to say. But to kickstart, as I promised, Joy. over to you so i'm you know so i'm staying with the concept of sport because as you know i'm very interested in sport and this is a particular part which i you know i've done a lot of research on because what i've been researching on is this extreme mystery called the tokyo olympic anti sex bets you might what? Ask, what are these tokyo yes the tokyo olympics anti sex bets so if you have to realize that you know in the olympic games there are lots of men and lots of women in close proximity with a lot of adrenaline flowing and lots of stuff happens since 1988 and you know we've heard stories uh, 1968 bob beeman said that he you know jumped so high jumped so long actually because uh, he had sexual intercourse just before and that sort of seemed to inspire him but from 1988 onwards the actual olympics have they give away condoms to make sure it's safe because this is after the age started right and so 160000 condoms were ordered to be handed out during the 2021 the actual 2020 olympics olympic games but there was an issue suddenly there was this word that the olympics organizers had made this really smart way of making sure that people can't make out and what did they do they made something called anti sex beds So what they were saying was that all the beds in the Olympics if you know that this entire the Tokyo Olympics is all about recycling yeah. medals were recycled everything was recycled so the beds were also recycled from cardboard and it turned oh out that God. somebody leaked a story saying the reason they've had cardboard bed is that you cannot have sex on top of the bed the moment you try and have sex the bed collapses so these are called anti sex beds and there was a huge rumor that this is the way Japan is subtly making sure that there's not too much sex during the Olympics. Well, mm. I have to tell you the bad news is it was absolute rubbish. Those beds could support as much as they had to and in fact a couple of athletes actually jumped on top of it and did a lot of stuff on top of it just to show that they were capable of doing it. These were not anti-sex beds, they were just recycled beds. Yeah, no, my my only point is I think um, us Indians we are so focused on our target and our objective that we do not think of these side issues. uh when we when we go to the global stage and we have to perform and that's why 
now I can understand why uh, our team did so well and we got a, a ton of medals and probably a record haul of medals in Indian Olympic history with, with Neeraj Chopra, uh, you know, the jewel in the crown with the gold medal and so on and so forth. I mean, yeah, I get it. We are, you know, this is focus on work. I mean, what is this? Having sex while you're in the Olympic Games, let's say applying for a job interview. Man jumped 29 feet after having sex and he made a record that has held for 30 years. What about that? I, I, I personally don't think. Listen, if you win a gold medal, you can you can say a lot of things. I mean, I. <laughs> uh, but but. Hey, what's uh, your story? So my my story is a slightly different. I mean, it is um, you could say it's as pleasing as a good bout of sex. But let's let's stop right there. My story is about a review of a Michelin star restaurant which went viral in December. Uh, a Michelin star is what? It's one of the most desired of all seals of approval in the restaurant industry, right? For those who are not aware, earning a Michelin star usually indicates a restaurant of the highest quality. It basically indicates to diners that they're about to embark on a culinary journey that will tantalize their senses and, you know, in addition to filling their belly. But apparently, sometimes that's not the case. A restaurant called Meat Brothers, meat not as in M-E-A-T meat, but M-E-E-T meat, which is located in uh, Lecce, is Italy's, uh, you know, a Michelin star restaurant in Italy. And a travel writer called Geraldine de Reuter was drawn to visiting this restaurant after hearing rave reviews, good things, blah, blah, about a very, very talented chef called Isabella Potti, as she told you know, today food in all this. And there's also a very famous chef called Floriano Pellegrino. But the two of them, Isabella and Floriano, apparently, you know, churned out really world-class food. So she said, Geraldine de Reuter, the writer, said that, you know, that I'm pretty used to experimental cuisine and I've been to a few Michelin star restaurants. So I was anticipating something unusual, something fun. I was not expecting a four-hour hunger-induced fever dream and that's what she and seven of her friends got so this is what happened they spent four hours consuming 27 courses and that she said made me feel like i was a character in a dickensian novel because <laughs> i cannot impart this enough there was nothing even close to an actual meal served so what was served this is what was served they offered eight and 13 course meals De Reuter says that the party counted 27 items sent out and uh, the 27 offerings were tiny, strange, overly fussy portions and nearly always served cold, okay? Amongst the courses were, enjoy, tell me if you have had these, edible paper slivers, shots of vinegar, a tablespoon of crab, fried cheese balls with rancid ricotta, which is a type of cheese, a partial scoop of green olive ice cream, which she said, that she thought it was pistachio, then realized it's green olive. And of course, there was a plaster cast with foam, which looked like the mouth of a person suffering from rabies. That's what she said. These were the itty-bitty courses. So, De Reuter says that things started to go south almost immediately when she and her party were led into a cement cell of a room where music by Drake was pumping through invisible speakers. The room was unspeakably hot, and they seemed to be the only customers. And in addition to this, there was no menu, just a QR code linking to a video featuring a chef talking about many things, but not food. Servers that who did not explain what was happening. Guests who tried to stand and take a break were scolded to return to the table. <laughs> 
and dessert which came after the party hadn't realized that they had already been served the main course when I mean, they were basically their jaws had dropped to such an extent they were just going through featured a marshmallow flavored cuttlefish shaped object and frozen air that melted before it could be consumed after which they were told to leave the restaurant and where all this free they were not they were led to the the meat brothers laboratory where a tv played extreme sports and a chef gave them very tiny slivers of fake cheese apparently and there's this um, it, it apparently i mean it could be paper for all you care apparently <laughs> it it costed between 150 to 225 a pop there were seven or eight people in the party but there was the only nice thing was they were handed meat brothers balloons and a polaroid picture was taken and posted on social media so de reuter ends by saying they're either comedic geniuses or sadists but that's fine if that's what your audience is expecting but we sort of wanted to eat dinner and this review went viral globally and i thought this was an incredible story to start with for a michelin star i mean tell me something joy sometimes you start thinking oh by the way the chef floriano responded in social media by saying being able to draw a man on a horse does not make you an artist the result of your talent can be beautiful to look at but it is not art drawing a man on a horse is the same as making <laughs> food many people are able to make good food your grandmother could do it my wife does it great mcdonald's knows how to make a hamburger preparing food that is liked is like making a drawing of a man on a horse it is not that hard but most people will admire you and went on on a ramble like this for three pages and and there's some pictures yeah, of like crazy yeah i sounds complete what is a man on a horse what is art what is food what is a chef what is a client this is what he's written in response i think i think it was fantastic it was a a good reparty and but slightly confusing reparty as well yeah so that was my believe it or not news item and i think good enough to kick start a new season and um, with that we come to another break coming up and uh, we come to the end of chunk of the first two sections of our episode but before we take the break we would as always like to remind all our listeners that please write to us uh, give us your suggestions um, ideas of new sections new things to talk about answers to our quiz questions to this email address factoftomatterindia@gmail.com you can also catch all our episodes on amazon music spotify apple podcast google podcast report stitcher basically on any listening platform which you prefer do click on the follow button which will ensure that you automatically get informed whenever a new episode drops and boy will we start dropping episodes regularly you can also check our website anchor.fm/factofthematter and leave your feedback i hope you've enjoyed what we have dished out so far and we will come back shortly Welcome back. Without wasting any time, we now go into our next section, which, as always, is cute words and phrases. And in the new year, in our first episode of this new season, we shall start with a phrase which I thought has a very interesting sporting connection. You know, since we have spoken a lot about sports today, the phrase I'm talking about is "no holds barred." Joy. any idea where and i've already given a hint it's sports but from where would do you think this phrase could have originated no holes you tell me bar. a little bit more i think it's wrestling but 
I suppose you can you, tell me a little bit more. You are absolutely right. February 1892, Manitoba Daily Free Press newspaper. The first reference to the words, no holds barred can be found. And this is what was written. William Gibbs, the Kansas man, and Dennis Gallagher of Buffalo engaged in a wrestling match at the Opera House here tonight. Gibbs was strangled into insensibility and may die. The conditions of the match were best two in three falls, Greco-Roman style, no holds barred. And this means that you know, these holes are obviously wrestling holes, and that's where the phrase originates. Now, the thing was, prior to the formation of rules, wrestling was very free-form joy. So, there was no need to mention no holes barred, as that was taken for granted. It was assumed that you could do anything until one person beat the other or had a advantage over the other in such a way that you had to give up. It was only after the sport became regulated. And, you know, today it's obviously an Olympic sport. India has a fantastic uh, history in wrestling, especially with the recent medals which we have been winning. Uh, it is administered by an international governing body. But because of that, now you have to say no holds barred or you have to say you have to follow the rules of freestyle or Greco-Roman which are the two main styles however you also have WWE wrestling which is forms of they say contemporary no holds barred but you know there is a Hulk Hogan apparently starred in 1989 film based on free form wrestling called no holds barred there's a movie by that name and its tagline was no ring, no ref, no rules. <laughs> I like it. So, no holds barred wrestling are now, you know, there's there, there are forms of wrestling called hardcore wrestling or cage fighting, not WWE. WWE is wrestling entertainment. That's, that's completely different. But um, Hulk Hogan was a WWE star and one of the legends of WWE. And this was, this is the background of no holds barred. So, you're right, Joy, it is. I, I love all these you know, sporting origins, the number of sporting terms that we've got, you know, the, the other ones I wanted to pick up on and I realized that we actually have a phrase that has come from two different sports, mm -hmm. uh, they mean the same thing, so to drop the gloves and the gloves are off and both really mean the same thing that okay, you know, we've had the fun, it's exactly like no holds barred, it means okay guys, no more rules, we're going to do it, so the gloves are off comes from boxing. Of course. Of basically, course. if you box with gloves, it hurts less. Bare knuckle boxing is likely to injure you more. But the interesting part of it is, drop the gloves also comes, has the same origin. Saying that if you want to fight, you take off the gloves and fight. But it doesn't come from boxing. It comes from ice hockey. And which oh. is why you see, you use the term, the gloves are off more. Right. Whereas in America, it's to drop the gloves and go for it. So, it's because ice hockey is a bigger sport in America than it is in the UK. So, Fantastic. interesting how they sort of, you know, make that. And the, the other interesting one I thought about was, again, a talking like no holds barred, was low blow. Oh, that's a low blow. So, low blow and below the belt are also the same thing. That in boxing, you cannot hit below. Basically, the waist. below your navel, you're not allowed to hit. So, both those terms, low blow, that means hitting below and below the belt come from the same place. But uh, interesting how boxing has given so many terms. Boxing and wrestling have given so many, so many. And one day, one day I want you to uh, explain how Southpaw came about, which is the, the term given to a left-handed boxer, right? A typical left, which is, which, which is, again, something which is not common. But from what I remember, that also has an interesting origin. But let's hold that for another day because we come to a very interesting section where for the first time this season, and I think 
it was pretty clear last season, Joy, you had a very strong upper hand in what was a no-holds-barred contest, but I dropped the gloves or the gloves so many times that you you had you sensationally won that round. But 2022 is a new ball game altogether. And since I'm fast running out of metaphors and phrases, I'll end that by saying this is our first episode of Bare Naked Lies, the first section of the year where we ask each other one question for new listeners and we try to fool each other. So it's a true or false question and we try to see if we can, you know, fox or outwit the other person. So Joy, do you have a question for me? Okay, I've got a question and obviously I'm sticking to sport and I'm sticking to sport controversies. Okay. So the 2000 Summer Paralympics, not the Olympics, the Paralympics in Sydney, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Spain was stripped of their intellectual disability basketball gold medals shortly after the games closed because they found out that almost all the Spanish, the players playing for the Spanish team actually did not have intellectual disabilities and no tests were conducted. True or false? 2000 Paralympics in Sydney, uh, intellectual disability basketball event happens, Spain wins and it turns out later that very few of their players actually had intellectual disabilities. So it was complete cheating, true or false. This was, uh, you know what, all your questions are becoming bizarre. They are so bizarre, they can actually feature in believe it or not sections. I mean, this... In, in, in trying to, you know, fox me, you're, you're plumbing the depths. And this early in a season, I am appalled. But being a true sport, being a good sport, I will, one day, we'll have to find that out also. Why is it called being a good sport? Anyways, my answer is it's true. Absolutely correct. Yes, well done. <laughs> I thought if it's bizarre, let's go with it. You have... You have that habit of tweaking one little bit of this. I mean, I was half expecting you'll say the sport was not basketball, but water polo or something like that. And, and then, but, you know, I thought, why not? Why not start? So, okay, that's that's a good start. That's a fantastic start. I have for you a question, which is from the world of entertainment. Now, there is a web series on HBO, HBO Max, and in India on Disney Plus Hotstar through them called Succession which is a fantastic uh, web series based on broadly about a media tycoon and his family, his son's daughter, etc., etc., son-in-laws. And the whole thing is set uh, in the background of their corporate life as well as their personal life. And it's fantastic. It's it's won, you know, primetime awards, etc., etc., for not just this year, but even I think it did pick up a few Golden Globes, but also in previous seasons. And it's brilliant. Brian Cox plays this role. So my question is that two of the characters, one of whom takes on the role of an interim CEO uh, in this company and a son-in-law of the of the Brian Cox character who's the overall owner. Two of these characters, if you take their first names, they actually form a very, very famous and not deliberately, but coincidentally, a very famous cartoon series, which all of us have heard about. So the man, the guy, the son-in-law's character name is called Tom Lamgans. That is Tom. And the CEO, the interim CEO, or the you know, at a very crucial part, is called Jerry. So Tom and Jerry, cartoon characters. Am I right or not? 
with these names. Am I creating a right construct here? The Tom and Jerry cartoon character, which is right, but these are the names of the two key players in succession. Yeah, I, I don't think the Jerry spelling was like that, but I'm, I think I've seen succession and I remember Jerry the lady and uh, yeah, I remember very interestingly how she was a legal head. I'll go with Tom and Jerry, I think it's true. And you're correct. It is indeed true. It is Tom and Jerry. And there I was trying to make you feel that I must have made this up, but I can see you are made of sterner stuff, Joy. You're just talking to a fellow admirer of the series. The series, yes, yes. I thought I thought this could be a nice, interesting uh, uh, throwaway question, but that's it. Honors are even. We have a tie. So good way to start the new season. I think that that augurs well. It, it, it's, a, it's a good warm-up as they say. And that brings us uh, to the end of this episode. But don't worry, we are not going to go away immediately because we have the audience section, which is the special question of the day. And today, Joy, with your permission, I will give a question. I realized, you know, last season, uh, you were doing the honors. And this time I thought, let me step in and ask a question. But before that, Joy, I want you to give the question from the last episode we, we did in season one and the answer. And if I remember, it was an Oscar Wilde question, Joy. Okay. Thanks, Otin. My question last time was, and it seems a long time back, was which famous work was actually published with the author's name as C33? And of course, that was The Ballad of Reading Girl by Oscar Wilde. And the reason he chose this name C33 was he was at that point in time in jail himself in Reading Girl. And it was C for cell block C. Landing three, cell three. And therefore, he didn't want to use his own name because he was, of course, ashamed of being in jail, but he used C33 as the title of that work. Yes, so Ballad of Reading reading Jail. And the correct answers have come from Saurav Shukla, some, some old-timers and some, you know, regulars, Anshuman Nandi, Neeraj Dubey, Rohit Jadav, and Rashika Bodh from Nalsar. So... Thanks, everyone, for responding to this. We have lots of people trying to answer. And, uh, you know, uh, well done for getting, getting this very interesting question. But before we go, we leave you with a question from this episode from me, as I have promised. And my question is this. What one word, and I'm looking for a specific word, connects the following? The Australian tennis legend Rod Laver, the Tapsi Pannu... Bollywood movie based on Indian athlete and the professional snooker legend from the United Kingdom, Ronnie O'Sullivan. What one word connects Ronnie O'Sullivan, the professional snooker legend from UK, multiple winners across all forms of snooker tournaments. Tapsi Pannu's recent movie on sports on where she plays the role of an athlete, and the Australian tennis legend, Rod Laver. What one word connects these three people? Send in your answers to factofthematter at gmail.com. As always, send us your feedback once again, your suggestions to, to our email address. You can also write to us on our website, anchor.fm slash fact of the matter catch all our episodes on amazon music spotify apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and every any uh, listening platform which you prefer follow us 
uh, write to us, let us know what you liked, what you didn't like, and we will try and come back to you with more stuff. Once again, wishing you a very happy new year. And uh, while Joy and I are freezing ourselves a little bit here in chilly Delhi, we want you to have a very, very happy year, a great year, have fun. Enjoy something from you before we sign off. Keep warm. If you're in Delhi, keep warm. If you're anywhere else, don't worry about the Omicron. Keep cool and wear a mask. Fantastic. And if you're Bene Gesserit, keep muttering away all those lovely Bene Gesserit uh, lines like, I shall not fear and so on and so forth. Apparently, it helps, Joy. I've heard. Uh, you've been watching Dune, I see. Yes, yes. But anyways, <laughs> that's it for us on, on the first episode of our second season. Have a great, great week ahead. <laughs>